Welcome to the BMJ Podcast. Today we have the third of our series of roundtable discussions talking about ways in which we can fix evidence-based medicine. We're holding these discussions around the country. Uh, First of all, we were in London talking to the Far Institute about big data. We then went up to Nottingham to talk to the clinical trials unit there about RCTs. And in this one, we're up in Scotland talking politics. Now, in Scotland, the new chief medical officer, Catherine Calderwood, has launched what she's calling realistic medicine. It's an attempt to change the way in which doctors, patients and politicians think about healthcare, and is based on the idea that really what matters to patients may not be the same thing that matters to doctors or that the system is actually set up to provide. We went up to Scotland to talk to some of Catherine Coldwood's team about how they think about evidence at a policy level and what they can do to change how politicians think about evidence. So, in that discussion were... So, I'm Valerie Doherty uh, from the Cancer Access team uh, here at the government. Andrew Riley, uh, consultant public health in the NHS, uh, NHS borders and senior medical officer, uh, Scottish government. I'm Gregor Smith, I'm a GP by background and I'm Deputy Chief Medical Officer for Scotland. Hi, Carl Hennigan, Professor of Evidence-Based Medicine from the University of Oxford. Peter Fernandes, Clinical Lecturer in Neurology from the University of Edinburgh. I'm Craig White, I'm Divisional Clinical Lead in the Healthcare Quality and Improvement Directorate at Scottish Government. Dave Caesar, Emergency Medicine Consultant and National Clinical Advisor to the CMO. Christine Gregson, Training in Infectious Diseases in General Medicine and work with the CMO Director on Realistic Medicine. Angus Cameron, uh, Medical Director, Dumfries. Now, if we start with Angus Cameron there, he is a bit cynical about how politicians view evidence, but Craig White is a little bit more optimistic. I'm just going to say I'm, I'm terribly cynical, I'm afraid, but if you talk to a politician about evidence, um, they have evidence that they understand. They have evidence that if you offer the public a commitment to more spending on health, particularly if it's visible, if it's big and new and shiny, it gets you more votes. So the evidence from them is that actually you have to commit to more spending and it has to be more high drama, high photo opportunity spending. And actually the incremental approach to uh, addressing things in primary care actually is much less attractive. And so evidence that we present may not quite match what the politician sees as evidence. But if you've created the conditions where the conversation's moving into what does evidence mean to you as a politician, and some of us have sat in front of parliamentary committees where MSPs have said, you know, my constituent experienced X and are then generating on the basis of that one case the country's policy position. So, but if you can move the conversation to a discussion around you know, those issues about understanding of evidence and data and and actually be quite courageous to say, well, maybe that would be something that would be make you feel positive because you might get a vote from it. However, so I think we sometimes have to be bold in challenging our politicians. And I just say, I think the uh, one of the huge difficulties, though, is uh, realistically, uh, a positive action is seen politically and policy-wise as being really important. The difficulty comes when you uh, actually take evidence, it shows that a particular intervention or policy has, is not 
um, effective or based on you know um, evidence that is acceptable. And you you know you, one example was health checks. You know we can use that. I think the real difficulty comes when there is a, a need to reverse a policy, to remove a policy, to take what can be perceived as a negative action, when in actual fact it comes down to how you communicate that decision, that that removal of that particular um, policy, which isn't effective, isn't cost effective, can, be, uh, can allow resource to be freed up and used somewhere else. Uh, and I think it's the refinement of those kind of conversations that will bring real change, you know, uh, based on evidence. Uh, but we haven't got there yet. And I think it's really difficult that where a change in policy or removal is seen as a negative. Yeah. I think we have to change that kind of communication strategy as well. Andrew and Craig spoke of conversations there, which is a theme that's emerging in all of our discussions whenever we talk about dissemination of evidence. And Carl Hennigan from CEBM picked this up with Gregor Smith, the Deputy CMO. It does sound like you have a commitment to improve how policymakers use evidence to inform their decisions. And one of your actions to do that is to have a conversation with them. That is a firm action in, in effect, isn't it? I mean, I think that, that, that goes actually to the core of many of the people's purposes sitting around about this table just now. now if we go back to, to realising realistic medicine, one of the really important steps within that was actually not only getting consensus across the, uh, the clinical professions, but actually getting the support, cross-party support, of politicians to say this is the right way to do things in Scotland because again if we go back to legacy this is a long-term action we need to make sure that the politicians of all parties understand what we're trying to achieve with realistic medicine because it may go beyond the lifetime of any one par- parliament yeah. in terms of uh, for how we're, the, the approach that we're taking. And crucially as, as you'll be aware we've um, legislated to integrate health and social care provision in Scotland so not only did we have the clinical and care professions um, more traditional health but we had Scottish government's chief social work advisor mm-hmm explaining and supporting very similar messages and and there's a huge opportunity around that integration of of professional perspective um, for a delivery of a completely different care delivery system in, in 20 years time and that was craig white pointing out that solidarity of purpose can be useful now obviously as part of this process we want to influence governments to take evidence seriously when they're creating policy But another large part of the purpose of government is to set standards, which means influencing how their citizens, including healthcare professionals, conduct themselves. When it comes to changing behaviour across the whole country, then government has some levers that they can pull. Carl Hennigan from the CEBM asked the panel how the Scottish government is trying to make evidence at the very centre of practice. And again, starting this is Angus Cameron, Medical Director for NHS Dumfries and Galloway. Tackling unwarranted variation in care, which is an interesting concept, goes back to Jack Wenberg in the United States of America, who showed that there was lots of variation in care, that if you reduce that variation, you can basically improve care just by optimising some things you're already doing. I guess there are a couple of points. Not all variation is unwarranted. Some people might be doing something that's beneficial out there in in that variation but 
in, at the moment, I mean, this will be really interesting to people out there is to think, have you got any examples where you're tackling unwarranted variation or how you're going about it? We, we have a, a very good group in Scotland that's looking at variation in diagnostic testing. And actually, they're doing quite a remarkable amount of stuff. Some of it is saying you do not need to do a CRP every day when someone's in hospital because it's, it's nonsense. It doesn't change that frequently. Or even two or three times a day, it happens. Um, we have uh, started to get some benchmarking data, which is really helpful to present to clinicians, which we've been doing, uh, around some elective interventions, such as vascular surgery, cataracts, sigmoidoscopy, uh, or colonoscopy. Uh, and that does begin to shift people's um, behaviours, because we, we looked at colonoscopy, we were the world leaders in colonoscopy um, because we were using completely out-of-date guidance about how frequently you re-scope people who have a benign polyp. Um, that makes a big difference, but importantly it makes a big difference to the patient as well, uh, rather than having an annual colonoscopy to say you can have one every five years and it's perfectly safe. That's, that's a real bonus for the patient. Following on that, on a sort of more loose sort of terminology, is that is that balance between good variation, as we might describe the sort of sh the individual shared decision making, where you might uh, sort of uh, detour off what might be expected guided clinical practice for the benefit of the patient in front of you, versus more systemic team-based kind of uh, variation that's less well explained by. Um, individual patient preference. Uh, so hysterectomy rates is a good example of that, arthroscopy rates, uh, total hip replacement rates, uh, these, these sorts of things that um, in a country our size, in a population that's not so varied, um, these things are, are difficult to explain by differences in the patients and there must be something else going on there and, it, and I suppose it's, it's a, we're in the phase of starting to understand the scale of the variations to precipitate the conversations with a hope, I suppose, to slightly narrowing the bell curve, not eliminating the bell curve. And I think that's important for clinicians to, to be sort of reassured by as well. It's not about taking away the good variation that exists. It's about uh, just just narrowing the margins of, of some of the, the, uh, the scale of variation that exists that's probably not explained by patient variation. And that last point from Dave Caesar, a consultant in emergency medicine and advisor to the CMO. Back to Carl Hennigan. Well, let me ask you a question, so I'm going to take antidepressants as a good area where there's lots of variation. It's about a fourfold variation across the UK. Some, and, a, and in an area where we're supposed to be improving healthcare, it looks like in mental health things are getting worse. But interestingly, the way I look at this, that there seems to be a problem that I see. It's like the, the adoption of the intervention is sort of inversely proportional to the complexity. And what I mean by that, it's much easier to write a prescription for an antidepressant than it is to try and bring a cognitive behavioural or a problem-based approach to this. And we know they work just as well, because if you look at in primary care particularly, the effect of antidepressants is miserable. And actually, most of the evidence doesn't go beyond 12 weeks. But because it's less complex... To write an antidepressant, you can do something there and solve that problem now. And so we've got this problem driver in healthcare that you will always default to the easiest strategy in front of us. That's created a huge variation in care. Is that fair or is any thoughts about that issue? 
every system is perfectly designed to create the effects that it has. Yeah, exactly. And I think I think one of the opportunities, going back to what Craig was saying, that we have in Scotland is we have a scale that we can understand things to a depth that I think is helpful, and we we are just scratching the surface of that. The second thing is around the system supports us to really understand what might be useful in exact in exactly that field. So mental health is a, is a real challenge for us to improve. It's not a challenge in its own right. It's just a challenge for us to improve. And as you say, there are many things that aren't based in healthcare that that play into that. And we have we have structures and systems that enable us to have easier conversations around that around housing, education, uh, around recreational access, around all the other wider determinants of well-being that we need to start having and thinking about rather than just prescribing antidepressants. Uh, and there are probably some associated healthcare interventions that might be helpful as well, but we probably need to understand that as well. And I think, I think we need to get to the point where we are courageous around wanting to understand that better, investing in understanding that better, and not just going for the easiest thing that's that's there in front of us. Yeah. But that requires some tolerance around what we do already. And many GPs will say they don't have they don't have the time because of the way the pressures on their services, which are all very real to them in front, you know, seeing the patient in front of them. So how do we support them to change the way professionals work, to change the way people, patients ask questions in that setting to get the best outcome for those individuals and their families, all of whom have an effect on that and think differently about it. So how do we create the space to allow clinicians and service users to think differently, collaboratively about improving their lot in this in this field? And I think that's where we need to be thoughtful and, and create the tolerances as much as anything. If we're also finding realistic medicine exciting, that means some of the stuff we must have been doing was unrealistic. If I could answer that, I, I was very struck in a paper from the King's Fund about the evidence that doctors generally choose less treatment than their patients. And I remember an anaesthetist telling me about uh, sitting uh, or uh, assisting at a, an esophagectomy for a patient with quite advanced cancer, and both the surgeon and the anaesthetist agreeing they wouldn't dream of having that themselves. Now, there's a dishonesty there, and there's a lack of realism about uh, what are you trying to achieve. And that's what I think is driving the need for a more realistic approach to medicine. It's, it's not just about understanding evidence, but it's about honesty and being able to communicate effectively what the potential outcomes here, because we do, under-report harm in, in, in uh, our trials, but yeah. we also understate harm to patients, I believe. And that was Andrew Riley, Senior Medical Officer for the Scottish Government. Now, as one of our panel mentioned at the beginning of this, governments are beholden to their citizens, and an individual MP's view of evidence would be modulated by the experiences and understanding of their constituents. Peter Rodriguez is a clinical lecturer in neurology at the University of Edinburgh and thinks that patients' understanding of uh, EBM is beginning to change. And Valerie Doherty, clinical lead for the Cancer Access team, agrees and wonders about education. I think one of the most impressive things that's happened recently is an improvement in the way that evidence-based medicine is communicated to patients in a way that we know that people of all educational backgrounds and from all different disease backgrounds 
can understand and can process that data, but not just for patients, but for clinicians as well, to, to be able to translate what the evidence is telling us into um, information that everyone can understand. Apart from anything else, if you're talking about preventative measures, these have to be introduced at an early stage because for some of us around the table, it's a bit late for preventing things. And um, <laughs> I think it needs to get embedded at a younger age. And there have been some interesting things done, for example, with cancer-related messages uh, through schools and through the education system, uh, clearly showing that not only does this highlight things to the young people, but it will also stimulate conversations in households and families and, and, and alert people to things. And I think it's also, when you're talking about how you get evidence out to the public, it needs to be explained because, as we know, depending on how you put the picture down, you can give quite different messages yeah, yeah, with the same yeah. information. So I think we need to encourage people to be more kind of savvy about what these messages are saying. Um, and we have to work with the fact that there is quite a wide variety in people's understanding. And it's a bit of a step for a lot of patients then, if you go on to it, to expect to be involved because they are used to having a degree of trust in the clinician, which is not a bad thing at all. But they're not kind of expecting to say, well, what would you like to do? Um, it's, it's, it's quite a lot of things have to change, but I think it will have to change simultaneously, feeding in something at the younger end of the spectrum. Prevention is a long-term plan, isn't it? It's not a political one you'll see in the next few years. Yeah, is it? It's a long, it is a long, a long game. So, so I think what we're addressing here is culture change, isn't it? It's, it's culture change both within our public, but also within the way that we approach medical professionalism or clinical professionalism. Um, and that is a long game. Uh, one of the things that I've been struck by over the course of developing the concept of realistic medicine is actually that better understanding of where health literacy sits with our population and, and the really wide level of, wealth, of health literacy that we have. If we're going to get serious about getting better at diagnosing what people's preferences are towards their treatment, we need to be able to provide them and talk to them um, about the evidence on a level that they can properly join in and be part of that decision-making process. And I don't think that we've been quite there over the last few years. I still don't think that we have the tools available to us just now that help to support that process. And one of the really important things over the next few years is how we can support our public, how we can support our clinicians to have those conversations at a level where people can properly uh, feel as though they, 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 they can be as big a part of the decision making as they want to be. And so that they can feel empowered as a result of that, that one option, and it links with Angus's point earlier, might be not to have a biomedical intervention, that not taking that intervention that there may only give marginal benefit in an area that doesn't actually matter to that individual is is an acceptable outcome yeah. and we have a bit of a challenge we're in the scottish government building where um, all the scottish government civil servants and policy makers are currently beavering away um, but there is a challenge around policy makers and politicians too with this dialogue and the culture change where sometimes people have traditional concepts and models in their mind about what the effective response of a doctor or a nurse or a pharmacist will be to fixing things. And I'll come back to that point, it's a really interesting point in policy. Just yeah, and I think uh, just building on all of those is, is around the honesty thing, back to Angus's point, which is that we 
uh, have a responsibility to be honest with our policymakers and our decision makers as well, to the two being slightly separate, as well as our own profession, as well as the public, about what we can and can't do in medicine and uh, move from that sense of clinician primacy around decision making to uh, encourage more uh, self-determination around it because it's not realistic medicine is not about doing less to people it's about doing only the things that are going to add value to them not to us not to the system not to a spreadsheet uh, it's about to the individual in front of us and with the individual in front of us and we, we I think struggle as a profession to be honest about uh, what what the effects are of what we do it comes back to that the, the anaesthetist and the surgeon sitting around the around the operating table. You can, they can be honest on it on a professional level. Can they be honest about it in that difficult moment with a patient without in a way that gives them hope and trust and faith in the system because that should all be there and it can be there without false hope and without false trust. And that was Craig White picking up on the case for reframing health away from a biomedical model and Dave Souza on honesty about the limits of medicine. Christine Gregson is an infectious disease trainee and a current Scottish Clinical Leadership Fellow. And she picks up on a point that's been raised in other discussions, which is the way in which the creation of guidelines has affected practice and, in her case, changed her medical education. So I think at the heart of this realistic medicine thing is better conversation. But drawing on what Dave just said, I wonder how much we as clinicians really do fully understand the kind of pros and cons of what we're actually discussing with our patients. So, you know, I've been brought up and trained in a very much a guideline way. So this is what the guideline says. But what I can't really say for many things is where does the evidence lie behind that guideline? And I wouldn't be able to say for certain procedures or medications to the person in front of me, well, this is the harm and this is the benefit. So I do wonder about how much of it is about us as clinicians educating ourselves as to where those benefits and harms lie and then taking that conversation further to the people in front of us to see where their value lies and seeing where those two things can kind of sit together. Just, just to add to that, it's not just treatments, it's investigations, it's hospitals. Hospitals are safe places. Yeah. Well, those of us that work in hospitals yeah. know that that's not always the case, despite the best efforts of everyone that works in them. And, it, and there is, there is a, you know, we, are, we pray to a false god a lot of the time. And that, that is, we pray to the science that says, this is what the right answer is. And as we are learning, that may have been, you know, I'm uh, going to mix all my metaphors here, but, you know, uh, it's, it may have been built on rocky, on uh, sandy, sandy ground, you know, and we need to, we need to be more sceptical about it. Now, finally in this discussion, another big job of government is to oversee what happens, which in this day and age means data collection. In Scotland, they've started to collect and collate data in a more effective way. And Carla Hennigan opens up this discussion. I talked a little bit about, you know, we seem to have, we've got research over here, we've got high quality evidence which we optimise, but in the middle we've got quality improvement where we're often operating in an evidence void. And we've just come from the Far Institute, you've got this great institute that says better data saves lives. So, some, so, and in this space I'd like us to think now, how do we innovate, how do we use evidence and how do we use data together better 
to improve healthcare because if we're going to do that, we're going to need to do that for the realistic approach, aren't we? Now, that's a tough ask. And there are lots of people promising an awful lot in the world out there. Big data, here we come. Interesting thoughts around the table. I'm going to give you all one point to think about. I want everybody to contribute on this last thought. And I guess if you go earlier, it'll be easier for you. And if you go last, you'll have to really think hard. So what one thing could we do with data or with that space of quality improvement right now that could improve healthcare? And I can see the room yeah. thinking. So my insignificant reaction to that is it's about asking the right question. Okay. So, where are we, so we have a lot of information out there, but what we need to do is, as a clinical community, but also as, as a population of people, we need to think about what is it that we're trying to achieve and what is the question we're actually trying to answer. Okay, I like that. That's a nice day. The idea that could be elaborated, asking the right question <laughs> is a really important issue, isn't it? I think that's helpful. And what are we trying to achieve? So we're more, and this is an amplification, but also my response to your question, we're more likely to be able to ask the right or more helpful questions if we become more effective at having real-time data on our health and care delivery system more widely shared. And we're brave and courageous that that might create some very difficult conversations. Yeah, and I think that's an important point. The idea that data is there at the point of care, so it doesn't come after the event. That's a very good point. So it's getting harder now to think of what we might do. Well, I think we need to flag up what is, at the start at the very least, what is the most out of variance? What are the most extreme things? And possibly focus on that so that we're trying to bring things together and then you can fine-tune things that are perhaps less of a variance. So but if perhaps selecting the more extreme things as a start point, uh, I, again, I think it's essential that we bring the public along with us because we've already mentioned that the politicians are a, possibly a more ephemeral group, but the people you're going to have with you all the time. And so that's why if we get information better embedded among the people and better understanding there, when these people become patients, they will have a better so I think that's a good point, the idea of extreme variation fixing with real-time data, because if you just take a single point of information, you can always find extremes, but that might not reflect the truth. If you take more data points in a real time and then study the extreme variation. Maybe we'll leave Gregor to the end to sum up with all the points. We've still got a few people around the room. As an academic clinician, I think one of the things that really impresses about living and working in Scotland is that there are a lot of benefits of the way the healthcare system is set up here. So Scotland has the right number of people to be able to see results, but also it's got enough people so that you've got a big data set to look at. And not only that, but we collect data very well. So the CHI number, the community health identifier number, allows you to cross-reference interventions to see what helps and what doesn't help. And I think the challenge now is we have the data, it's about extracting out the interventions that improve and then we can measure that and spotting those that don't as well so I think that's one of the things we need to work on. So that also means all the people in the system have to be invested in the data clinicians have to collect it and record it really well you have to have a system approach to making that useful in a real-time way and then extract variation very interesting. Um, one of one of the things that um, I mean we Every, every health system in the developed world has more data than they know what to do with. And I think one of the things that we're seeing now is a shift from data for the sake of data to intelligence. And I think that's a really important thing. It comes back to Christine's point about it's got to, you've got to ask the right question. And one of the things that our central data repository 
is looking at is about how do we how do we display information around pathways rather than individual kind of points because pathways are far more meaningful to patients. Pa patients don't exist in single isolated silos in our system. They, they travel pathways through our system. And we're starting to be able to see how that might look at various different strata of, of populations. And I think that's, a really, that's one of the really exciting things so that we can see what system manipulations might change in the way that pathways are traveled and then actually start to reveal uh, what the actual effects on patients are, people are, rather than uh, what we think they are, and yeah. and it and again it puts the patient and the people central to all this, which I think is one of the things we have a real advantage with. Very interesting. Any points, Angus? I was just going to suggest that in reading the literature before this meeting, I was struck by a comment that we often confuse the ends with the means, and. Um, Tamiflu is the example par excellence of that, that there wasn't enough focus on does this work? And the big question became how can we get this out to everyone really quickly? And I, I'm sad to say only last year I attended a, a meeting which was about policy, about how to get medication out in the event of a flu epidemic. And the question of does this actually provide significant benefit uh, when I raised it, it was brushed over. The issue is how do we get it out? And we need to actually get yeah. get back a step or two and start asking, uh, is the, what are the ends? Uh, it's it's the, the your right point question, about the, asking the right question. Yeah. yeah, which is the end of the means. I think that's a really insightful point. I think pharmaceutical companies may want you to ask more about the means rather yeah. than uh, consider yeah. the ends. Yeah. Any points? <coughs> uh, I think I, I would certainly agree with a lot of what's been said uh, in specific about quality improvement. I think the value in Scotland is this ability to record link. Yeah. Uh, to, and it covers both the points already made in terms of that ability to describe a pathway, to learn from it. But I very much agree with the point that you know if we have identified an improvement, a potential improvement, the ability to actually enact that is the bit that we need to work on, the mechanism of actually changing and improving a service. I think it's still too difficult. And you know that's yeah. for me, is still the dilemma. I'm going to give our last point to Gregor, Deputy CMO, sum up how we're going to use data to reduce variation, improve health services, have a conversation, and realize realistic medicine. Well, Carl, as you know, sometimes we can be very fond of the C word <laughs> in, in, in Scotland. So I'm going to use some C words to try and describe this here. And, and first of all, context is really, really important. So, so the context for the system just now is around about how do we achieve value-based healthcare? Really, really important. That needs to be the way that we are approaching quality within Scotland. And, and people have mentioned the CHI, the, the health index that allows us to link data sets, which I think becomes really important uh, within that. We need to have confidence, or our clinicians need to have confidence in that data that they're using. It needs to be available and it needs to be the right data to allow them to have the, the, the kind of proper ownership of, of, of their particular areas. And the, and the last C word I'm going to use here is courage. We really need to have some courage and conviction in terms of the approach that we take to, um, to, to using data in a way for very honest conversations, both at a political level, but also with our population and our patients uh, in terms of um, what constitutes value-based healthcare uh, for, for this kind of modern era of medicine.
But look, I mean, that's really fascinating. I'm going to take away the C with my name being Carl with a C. Uh, for me, it seems to be about the conversation with the public seems to be really interesting. It seems you've got a dynamic interaction with policy and you're really focused on prevention, which is, you've rightly said, is a lifelong mission. So on that note, I'd say thank you very much. It's been a great and fascinating conversation. You've been listening to Valerie Doherty, clinical lead for the Cancer Access team, Andrew Riley, senior medical officer at the Scottish Government, Gregor Smith, who's the deputy chief medical officer, Peter Fernandez, clinical lecturer in urology at the University of Edinburgh, Craig White, clinical lead in the Quality and Improvement Directorate, Dave Caesar, consultant in emergency medicine and clinical advisor to the CMO, Christine Gregson, infectious disease trainee and a Scottish clinical leadership fellow, Angus Cameron, medical director of NHS Dumfries and Galloway, and of course, Carl Hennigan, director of the Centre for Evidence-Based Medicine at the University of Oxford. As always, after these discussions, we want to hear from you, so do go have a look at evidencelife.org manifesto, where you can read about everything we've done. All of these conversations and the comments submitted by people have been feeding into that manifesto, and we've changed it accordingly. Now, this is a living document, and we expect it to evolve even further over time as we learn more about what matters to patients and clinicians and find out who else is trying to fix the problems of evidence-based medicine. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, you can subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts from. We're pretty much everywhere these days. You can also find our back catalogue on SoundCloud, including the previous discussions in this series. Just search for BMJ Talk Medicine. I'm Duncan Jarvis, Multimedia Editor for the BMJ. Thanks for listening.